Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast, normally about China, America, and the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin, a fellow at Hoover, joined by my co-host, John Yu. And today, folks, we're going to do something a little bit different. Every once in a while, you got to get out of your comfort zone. And we have a perfect opportunity to do that today with our dear friend, our colleague, H.R. McMaster, who is the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. But more importantly, for the purposes of our discussion today, 30 years ago today was a young captain in the desert's of Iraq. He was leading an armored cavalry troop in what was the last great tank battle of the 20th century, the Battle of 73 Easting. That was February 26th, 1991. And we thought it was a perfect opportunity to talk to HR about the significance of that event, what it meant, and some of the lessons that can be learned from it. And for that, to kick us off, I'm going to, first of all, welcome HR and then turn it over to John Yu. So HR, welcome back to the Pacific Century. Hey, Misha and John, great great to be with you. And darn, I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) But but you still look bulletproof. (laughs) Uh, HR, thanks for joining us. And uh, before we talk about the battle, I was so happy to learn that you are you and I are both from Philadelphia. And so how before we get to the battle, how does a kid get from the land of soft pretzels, tasty cakes, decades of losing Philadelphia Phillies games, uh, watching decades of losing. How did you get from there to, yes, February 26, 1991, uh, in the middle of the desert at the head of, uh, you know, the point of the tip of the spear, as it were. Hey, John, you know, when I grew up in, in Roxborough. In the, You're in Roxborough. Oh, Roxborough my yeah. oh, my God. Oh, my God. People Roxborough don't know Roxborough is a tough working class neighborhood where now they are serving chai lattes and outdoor dining with white linen. I prepared yeah, him for the Republican it's, it's, Guard. It's way too, it's way too gentrified yeah. these days, you know, but, but it was a great place to grow up. You know, and my father was in the reserves. He'd served in the Korean War. He volunteered to serve in Korea, fought there. And then, then, you know, in in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia, there used to be a reserve infantry unit there. And he was a first sergeant of of an infantry company and then got a direct commission to captain and was the commander, the company commander of that same company. So I was exposed to the military from a very young age, and I always wanted to serve in our army. I mean, it's my youngest memory. And my mom, who was an amazing teacher, she taught uh, in in uh, in North Philadelphia at the Climber School at 12th and Rush wow. for deck for decades, but she instilled in my sister and me you know, a sense of history, and you know I read a lot of military history, and I wanted to be part of an endeavor bigger than myself. I wanted to be part of a team, you know, a team in in which uh, the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives, for you. Right. So these are you know some of the less tangible rewards of service that some Americans aren't as familiar with. But I'll tell you, I. You know, I, I always wanted to go to West Point. I went to West Point, but when I was there, I thought, okay, I'll serve for five years and, and get out. And, really? and when and when my wife Katie was roasting me at my retirement, she said, "Thank you for the bonus twenty nine years." <laughs> <laughs> and how is it uh, you you uh, went into armor uh, as opposed to all the other possibilities? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the story of this is like things don't 
work out as you planned in life, right? But it still can be okay. So I was commissioned in aviation. I went to fly, I wanted to fly 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 helicopters. And and aviation had just become a branch again. And I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky on my way to flight school. And they discovered an astigmatism in my eye that they had missed before. So I said, okay, hey, my second choice is infantry. Can I go to Fort Benning? You know, because I hadn't really thought about tanks that much, you know. And they said, oh, uh, thanks for your preference, Lieutenant. But hey, you're at Fort Knox. You're an armor officer now. (laughs) And I'll tell you, it grew on me. I, I gained an affinity for tanks especially when I went to ranger school and I was miserable thinking, man, I know I can't take my tank on this one rope bridge, you know? So, <laughs> so, uh, and I, 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 you know, of course I, I then, you know, got to my first assignment, which was not what I requested. I said, Hey, well then, okay, well, I'd like to go to Germany. That's really all the cold war actions there, right? That's where the armor is going to be, you know, mo- uh, is most relevant. They said, Oh yeah, thanks for your preference. Uh, Fort Hood, Texas, it is. So I mean, it was <laughs> in typical army fashion, but but I'll tell you, John. I mean, I, I being in in the cavalry, uh, in, in the armor uh, branch, it's combined arms warfare, right? And and uh, and and I I really think that I you know I had the best experiences I could have had, learning you know how to train, how to fight. How to, how to how to maintain a unit in, in the field, and uh, I felt extremely well prepared. You know when it came down to the invasion of when it came to the invasion of Iraq. So HR, can I kind of jump in and, and maybe take us on just a little bit of history? I mean, we're we're uh, we're a ways away from the great the days of the great tank battles, um, but if you know if you're growing up in the 20th century, sure there there was there was lots of different stuff. There were the sub there was submarine warfare and there was the Cold War, but you know tank battles were the thing. I mean, anybody who watched Patton, it was all about the tanks, right? And, you know, if you go back to World War One and Cambrai, you, you know, you talk about El Alamein, you talk about Kursk, you talk about the Yom Kippur War. I mean, armored warfare was really the central feature of, of projecting power. What what was it like to be sort of at the tail end of that in, in 91, before you even knew you were going to get into, you know, 31 Easting? Well, you know, there, there had been, you know, there had been obviously a, a number of, uh, of campaigns, lessons from those campaigns in connection with armored warfare, armored battle. And, you know, I studied them, right? I mean, I, I think that what's really important for a military officer is to understand historical experience because, you know, learning by experience in, in an activity that involves life and death is way too costly, right? You have to learn from the experiences of others. And so I had studied combined arms warfare, armored warfare, uh, and, and read as much as I could about it. Uh, you know, read read the Heights of Courage. You know, on the, about the Golan fight, for example, but also read quite extensively about about World War II and and the campaigns in North Africa, in particular. Of course, Rommel uh, was the master of the desert uh, in, until the arrival of, of U.S. forces, and and so I studied Rommel as well as some of the U.S. commanders, and in particular. General Ernest Harmon, who was the commander of the Second Armor Division, and I'll tell you what was just is one of these these um, you know experiences of, of serendipity, right? Where where we're getting ready to go, our executive officer, uh, Lieutenant John Gifford, is cleaning out the office, right? And and in any military unit, the executive officer's uh, office is just a mess. It's got all kinds of stuff in there, and so he's cleaning out the drawers. And in the back of the drawer, crammed in the back of the drawer, is this paper that he pulls out. And the paper is faded and crumpled, and the title is Notes on Combat Actions in Tunisia and North Africa by General er- by Major General Ernest Harmon. Wow. And I'm telling you, this is the Rosetta Stone wow. of desert armored warfare. And he just laid it out. And what we did is we took our historical knowledge, you know, updated it with you know Abrams tanks, which were extraordinary uh, weapons and weapon systems. 
And, and we came up with a number of plays, formations and battle drills that we ran. And we ran these over and over and got better and better at them. And you know, Ernest Harmon in this, I mean, it was very, he had some very simple lessons, right? He basically said, you know, he who shoots first in armored combat in the desert usually wins, right? So, so we had to work all of our weapons with great speed and accuracy under all conditions of combat day and night. And we worked really hard on that. And we, we, we fired another gunnery operation. He, he talked about fire distribution and control. And, and we worked on, on that. He said, you know, a good... You know, a, a good military unit, a good armored unit, it's like a football team. It can execute eight to ten plays with great precision uh, upon contact with the enemy. These are these are battle drills or rehearsed responses to a predictable set of circumstances in combat. But he also made some kind of softer observations like, hey, the most important thing you can do to prepare a unit is put leaders in positions of leadership because it's confidence in those leaders that act as a bulwark against fear and present, prevent hesitation in battle. Right. And, uh, you know, he had some other good you know, sort of, uh, he's he had some good metaphors in there. Like, if, you know, if it takes a toothpick, use a baseball bat, you know, which is, really, you know, you know, when in doubt, bump up. Right. Because, you you know, if you sting the enemy with your jab to use a boxing metaphor, you better follow with your right. Right. Because you don't want the enemy to recover. So so these were these were important lessons from a historical perspective. Um, and uh, it helped us prepare. And, and we trained really hard. We built a high degree of confidence. And I'll tell you, um, Mish and John, we had extraordinary leaders and soldiers in that unit. Um, and, uh, and I'm so proud uh, of them, you know, 30 years on, what they accomplished that day. What we accomplished, what we accomplished that day we, we, we did not surprise us uh, because we had you know, tremendous faith and confidence in each other. You know, and in, in an army, a good army unit, you know, a, 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 that unit takes on the quality of a family, really. You know, and and that's that's how we felt about each other in in Eagle Troop of the Second Armored Cavalry Regiment. Can you can you tell us? Oh, I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, John and I, we, we both want to be brought back there. Take us yeah, take us back take to, us back to that. Eagle Troop Second yeah. Armored Cavalry Regiment. Uh, it's part of Seven Corps. What were you guys doing there? Why? What, first of all, why did we even have tanks in the desert? Right now, yeah. we're thinking about CIA on horseback and special operations and drones from the sky. Why did we have tanks? How many tanks did we have there? What was our armored capacity? And what were you guys doing there that brought you to 73 Easting on that morning? I think I said 31 before, so I would have been like 40 kilometers away from the battle. 73 East. That's, that's Misha where you were <laughs> that's best, best deployed in any offensive would be I would have been the intel officer the 40 miles away, right? So <laughs> tell us why we were there. So, you know, we, we, I mean, there, were, there were a large number of armored vehicles deployed to, to the desert. And, and, and the reason is, you know, it's important to remember that the tank was invented to defeat the machine gun. Right? And, 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 you know, if you look at the horrors of the Western Front uh, in, in World War I, that is to be avoided. So we had this thing called the Automotive Revolution, which allowed, which allowed us to, to, uh, to, to defeat the machine gun and to restore mobility uh, to, to, to combat. And that's why, you know, tanks or mobile protected firepower is as relevant today as it, as it, as it was back in World War I and World War II and Desert Storm and so forth. Because you know you don't want a fair fight over the enemy, right? I mean, you, if you're if you're uh, if you're infantry against infantry, 
it's it's fire and maneuver and machine gun duels back and forth but you know a, a tank ends firefights and but of course a tank's not invulnerable you need you need infantry support you need artillery support you need you hope you have air superiority we had air supremacy which gave us a tremendous advantage not only a, a physical advantage over the fourth largest army in the world uh the iraqi army but also a psychological advantage right we didn't have to look up and say oh, geez i wonder if that's friendly or enemy right so so it, it helps it helps simplify the the problem ahead of you as a as a as a, a combat commander so i'll tell you we had we had massive numbers of armored vehicles and, and our regiment had an offensive covering force mission which meant it was our job in the cavalry to do what the cavalry's always done if you haven't seen the, the movie gettysburg watch that opening scene with buford riding up it's wonderful because it's exactly what you want the cavalry to do you want the cavalry to make contact with the enemy to develop an understanding of that situation to uh, to, to be able to think ahead of about how the battle's going to develop so you can help the higher level commander make the best decisions and identify where the enemy's weak, where the enemy's strong, avoid strength, isolated, attack weakness, right? So that's what the cavalry is all about. Uh, and you have to be able to fight and report simultaneously. Uh, and in this case, uh, in an armored cavalry regiment, you know, you have tanks there because you're about to encounter the unexpected. And and when you encounter the unexpected, you want to do that from a position of strength, right? So so we we had the benefit of of a cavalry troop as part of a, a cavalry squadron, and in our troop we had nine M1A1 t- uh, tanks, we had twelve uh, Bradley uh, cavalry fighting vehicles, uh, we had two mortar tracks, and then we had you know logistics support, and we had artillery with us within our squadron, uh, and we had aviation, we had air cavalry units that could operate forward of us now. Uh, you know, on the 26th, the day of the fight uh, against the Republican Guard, uh, we had now been in Iraq for, for three days uh, and we had moved deep into Iraq in kind of a halting movement. We had made contact with some Iraqi infantry units uh, and, and we quickly overwhelmed them. And then we bought we bypassed them. Right. Because we were our job was to go find the Republican Guard and help the armored corps behind us. You know, take the, the right sort of uh, axis of advance to avoid strength and and uh, and and to uh, and to and to go into Kuwait. Our job was to kind of kick the door open to Kuwait and then allow the armored divisions to continue the attack. And so, when but on the twenty sixth, you know, the, the, the it was uh, it was a, a difficult uh, difficult conditions that we encountered. I mean, it had poured rain the night before. I mean, just poured rain. And, and that night is when we made contact with the Republican Guard reconnaissance elements, uh, G Troop, under the commander of my, my West Point classmate and good friend Joe Sardiano, had had a, a quick engagement. They had captured some enemy vehicles. G Troop drove those to the, to the squadron command post. We had a meeting with the troop commanders. We said, okay. We're about to hit the Republican Guard, and we looked at some of the maps and, and, the, and, the, and the weapons that we had that we had captured. They were all brand new. It was very clear this was a much different kind of unit, much better resourced than the infantry conscript units we had encountered and rapidly overwhelmed uh, in, in the earlier days of the of the fight. Hey, Chair, let me pause. Let me pause. Can you tell us what what did you know? Like, what did you what had you been told? What did you know about your enemy, the forces, their configuration? Kind yeah. of when you describe it, it almost sounds like you don't really know when you're plunging forward, uh, you know, in this world today where everyone has so much data and intelligence, yeah. drones, satellites. Right. It sounds like you're actually the reconnaissance for this huge army coming behind you. Absolutely, John. That's the case. Right. And you would think, OK, air supremacy. We should have known everything. Well, we knew in general 
where the Republican Guard main defenses were, but we didn't know any of the specifics. Mm. Part of the reason is they did a really good job of camouflage. Mm. They camouflaged their vehicles. They also took uh, t- took uh, some pages out of the books of de- deception. Mm. Uh, they would put like uh, you know a telephone pole to make it look like a tank, and they would light uh, burn barrels to to give it a thermal signature, mm. so to divert some of the some air power in that direction. They dug these trench lines and bunkers, John. I mean, they were extensive. Mm. And when and when you went into the into these bunkers, they had furniture, televisions set up. <laughs> I mean, it was extraordinary. So they went underground. They used deception and camouflage. And in, in this brigade that we were about to make contact with, it was a it was a large force. Uh, I think they had only had three loss, three armored vehicle losses to the air campaign. Right, wow. and the air campaign was focused on other areas, maybe and so forth. But uh, but we didn't really know, you know, we didn't really know. And in fact, we didn't have any maps of the area either, John. We we're moving through this 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 featureless desert, and so we took just generic one to one hundred thousand maps, which are like grid squares, and we would just write the grid squares in uh, the, the numbers, the the north, south, and east, west running numbers, uh, latitude, longitude, but really just uh, based on the the military grid reference system, uh, and use it kind of as a plotting board. And we're moving through a featureless desert. And, you know, we were using dead reckoning. So I would jump off my tank. My loader, Jeffrey Taylor, would run out. I'd put him on the azimuth that we're going due east at this point on the 26th. We would line the tank main gun up with my loader and then engage the stabilization weapon system and just deadhead it and then <laughs> use the odometer, right? And wow. and then we had these new things, these new things called global positioning systems, oh, GPSs. We had four of them. And they only worked about one third of the time. You know, when they when they stopped working, we called it GPS sad time. You know, but what, what it did is it allowed you to then recalibrate. Okay, yeah, this is where I, I think I'm from dead reckoning. Yep, I'm pretty close to that. You know, and then and it would come off and on. You know, dur- during uh, during the during the attack. So was it the uh, not surprise, but when you encountered uh, <clears throat> the enemy tank force, was it a surprise or not a surprise? Well, since you, you weren't ready, but you just didn't know they were there when you made contact. No. No, we 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 knew that they were in the general area, and but what they had done, which was pretty uh, smart of them, is is you know our aviation was grounded that day. Uh, we had fog in the morning, and then we had high winds and a sandstorm, so we didn't have our air cavalry scouts out in front of us. And as we were moving now in a halting manner, with our limit of advance shifting further and further to the east, because our our higher headquarters was thinking don't get decisively engaged, right? Like we're the scouts, right? We're supposed to find the enemy. And then we have these heavy armored divisions behind us. You know, we'll, we'll fire artillery and then the, and the, the, the armored divisions will continue the attack. Well, you know, sometimes plans don't work out that way, right? In, in battle. And, and what this enemy commander had done, this guy, Major Muhammad, he was a brigade commander. He had graduated from the, the infantry officer advanced course at Fort Benning, Georgia, because you might remember really? during the, oh. during the Iran Iraq war, we yeah. provided some support yeah. to the Iraqi, uh, military. Wow. So, so he had established a sound defense, a reverse slope defense. Yeah. What we didn't know, John, is we were paralleling a road. Because we didn't have any maps. We didn't realize we were powering power a road. Mm. Well, the, the Iraqis, they assumed, okay, they're going to have to parallel a road because they're going to get lost in the desert. They didn't know we had GPS. They didn't know about how we, 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 were, uh, we were navigating. And that road led to a village or really a barracks area that, was, that, that, that then uh, this brigade fortified. They dug in infantry. They dug in anti-aircraft uh, uh, um, weapon systems in a ground mode. These are the GSU-23, 23-millimeter 23 uh, automatic cannons. And then this ridge that ran perpendicular to the road, they used 
to, to create their defense on the back side of it. So on the back side of that ridge, their defense was impossible to see yeah. as we were moving from west to east into Kuwait. And, and on the back side of that ridge, what did they put? They put minefields. They put uh, minefields on the back side. And then they created kill sacks, engagement areas to, to, to destroy us piecemeal as we came over that ridge. They dug in tanks on the back side. They dug in mm. infantry on the back side. And then what they did is they, they had a reserve of about 18, exactly 18 T-72 tanks uh, on the top of the next ridge. And that's where the brigade command post was. So as we came over this rise, uh, you know, is, is when we encountered the enemy. But before this, before this, uh, one of our scouts, uh, Staff Sergeant McReynolds, he had driven his Bradley on top of a bunker. That's how he <laughs> discovered the bunker. It kind of collapsed. And so these Iraqis came out stunned with their hands up. And, and so he captured them. He put them on top of his Bradley. He ran them back to Bill Varil, our first sergeant. Uh, and then, then that's when Sergeant Maurice Harris's Bradley comes under heavy fire from this fortified town, this fortified village. Uh, and, and it's funny, you know, Harris calls up uh, Lieutenant Tim Gauthier, third platoon leader. This is our scout platoon that was on our, on our southern flank and said, hey, I'm, I'm coming under fire. <laughs> you know, uh, Gauthier says, well, you know, expletive deleted, you know, kill them. Right. So so, so then uh, uh, Harris returns fire with the 23 millimeter chain gun of the Bradley and the fight begins. It's at that point that I decide that, hey, we've got to suppress this enemy position. And again, you know, Ernest Harmon, if it takes a toothpick, use a baseball bat. So I called the nine tanks. And I, I said, Green, come up on my right. This is fourth platoon of four tanks under Jeff Stefano. White, come up on my left, which is Mike Hamilton of, of uh, second platoon. This is now, so now we have nine tanks oriented on this on this village. And I gave a fire command. Uh, you know, and you know, green and white, this is black six, uh, one round heat frontal, which is a distribution pattern. Uh, you know, at my command ready report. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to fire around right now to Mark center. So we fired around and then got through, uh, fired a tow missile, uh, to Mark center. And I got ready, ready. And I gave the command of fire and then nine high explosive rounds were fired simultaneously into this, uh, enemy position, effectively suppressing them. And then what happened is simultaneously, we got the word, okay, Hey, you can now go to the seventh to, to the seven zero Easting. We were at the six, seven, which is a North South grid line on a map. So we could go three more kilometers as, as we got permission to do that. Staff Sergeant David Lawrence and Cowart McGee, who are the scout section of first platoon, the scouts forward of us and Bradley's, they're on the far north part of the zone of attack for us. Lawrence, who was a squad leader for me when I was a scout platoon leader at Fort Hood, he's a great sergeant. He's scanning, he's like, there's a hot spot out there. What is it? What is it? And Bradley Feltman, his gunner, says, I don't know. Let's put a tow missile onto it. So they fire a tow missile. And as that missile hits, it's a tank, they can tell, because the third of that tank is ripped up, blown up into the air. So as I am now telling the troop to continue our advance to the east, uh, on, on the radio net for that platoon, there's tanks, tanks to the east. And, and, and I decided at that point, before I even got that report, to go to a tank's lead formation. So I wanted to... to well, let me just yeah. demonstrate that. So, so first of all, in the village, you had already destroyed something like, like 30 tanks and, and, and more, right? In, in that village alone. I mean, this was already a major engagement. Nine tanks of U.S. Right. against 30 of the Iraqis. Well, that's going to about to come, Misha. So, so the, they, they had some armored vehicles, uh, BMPs and, and uh, MTLBs, they're called, uh, in the village, but no tanks in the village. So the first contact with tanks was Lawrence when he fired the missile. And that's when I said, okay, go to tanks lead, 
green and white, white and green, follow my move. And so my tank was now at the apex of a nine tank wedge. And as we're moving past Petchek scouts, they're now beginning to open fire, doing what we call reconnaissance by fire with high explosive rounds. Because Lawrence has said, hey, tanks out there. So then I've got to get, get Petchek, hey, cease fire, you know, cease fire because we're going forward of you. That caused a little bit of separation between my tank and the other eight tanks. So my tank then comes over the top of that ridge. And hey, that's what you see. I mean, with the naked eye, I'm up out of my hatch. Um, I immediately saw nine tanks you know, with the naked eye at a, at a range of 1,000 meters, which is kind of like knife fight range for tanks. And, um, and, and then gave the command to my gunner, uh, Craig Koch. I said, you know, fire, fire, sabo, and adjust, uh, which means we fired a high explosive round out, which destroyed that first tank. And the next rounds going in, we're going to be these, these kinetic energy, you know, depleted uranium darts uh, that weigh about 14 pounds and travel about two kilometers a second. Armor-defeating rounds. So, so uh, because of the separation, our tank got three tank main gun rounds uh, off. We killed three tanks in about 10 seconds. Wow. And then yeah. my, my driver, Chris Hedenskog, is saying, hey, we just went through a minefield. <laughs> I just want to let you know. <laughs> and he knew that the worst thing would be for us to stop. So he wended his way around the anti-tank mines, and the anti-personnel mines just popped like microwave popcorn under the tracks of your tanks. Um, so we put the word out. Then, uh, then I gave a contact report. You know, <laughs> contact east, you know, nine armored vehicles, green and white. Are you with me? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and sort soon they crested that rise. And when they crested the rise, this is when the, this was the decisive blow, right? Cause then you have, then you have eight more tanks firing around every three seconds and not missing. So it doesn't take too long to, for everything within the range of your guns to be in flames, I then talked to tell our Bradleys, get in the tracks of the tanks, get in the tracks of the tanks because of the minefield. But what happened is those explosions created a curtain of smoke, right? So all these armored vehicles are on fire. Secondary explosions are happening, right, as, as ammunition goes off and so forth. And so Henscog, my driver, he, was, he knew what to do, right? We trained together. And so he pivoted us to the, to the right or to the south to bring all the, all the troops' guns to bear into the fight. And then what happened is we penetrated the, 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 this curtain of smoke. And then on the back end, more armored vehicles to the south, more armored vehicles. And so we're just constantly engaging. Enemy infantry is running. Some enemy infantry is surrendering. Our tanks lay off them, but they talk to the Bradleys. Hey, as you come through the tanks, pick up the surrendering infantry. But the surrendering infantry, what they did is once the tanks passed them, they picked up rocket-propelled grenades and were firing machine guns and, and, and AK-47s at the back uh, of our heads. But the Bradleys came through, picked them up, destroyed them very quickly. Uh, it's at this point when my executive officer called and said, hey, I, I know you don't want to know this now, but you're past the limit of advance, yeah. meaning that we were supposed to, to stop. That was what I was going to ask. Um, you were only supposed to go to, what, 70 Easting, and you, you just blew through and just you're, you're, you're up to 74 now. Right. And we, 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 uh, we couldn't stop. You know, and, and so I, 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 I uh, radioed back to, to John Gifford, you know, because I was on the troop net. Uh, and had to focus on the troop fight, he was listening to the troop net and talking on the squadron net. And I said, hey, tell them we're in contact. Tell them we can't stop. Tell them I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and we continued the attack uh, to the east in that formation with the nine-tank wedge with our third platoon scouts uh, protecting our southern flank and our first platoon scouts following in support of the tanks 
with our mortars coming with us now on our trains and everything. Um, and, and we're starting to, to, to see that, you know, that, that uh, we're on this upslope uh, again. And what, what we did was we, we got to the top of another imperceptible rise uh, in the terrain. And when we did that, we entered the, the enemy reserve uh, assembly area of 18 tanks. And, and this is when tank to tank ranges got down to like 350 meters. Wow. I mean, that's, you could not tell my tank was the first to come up onto the ridge. We, sh- we destroyed one tank on our way up because we could see it just as we we're coming up. And then we flattened down on top of that ridge and the enemy tank commander, he looked over his shoulder. I could see the expression on, <laughs> on his face. And, and, uh, and then when we fired the tank, uh, the, the main gun, uh, you could not tell the difference between the gun uh, going yeah. off the enemy tank being impacted and hails of, of blue sparks and hunks of metal you know, coming back over our heads. Um, and so the, you know, the sensory experience was, was quite remarkable. Uh, and, and, and then we, after we destroyed those 18 tanks, then we stopped because we had nothing left to shoot. We also destroyed some tanks and, and armored vehicles further out as we consolidated on this ridge. And now my concern was, hey, let's not get shot by our own friends here you know so i was getting on radio nets of of, of uh g troop to our north uh mike petchek our, our scout uh platoon leader for first platoon went up to make physical contact with g troop as they came up behind us and to our right another west point classmate and one of my one of my old roommates from west point was commanding that troop of i troop of uh of the third squadron of the second cavalry and i just got on his net and i, and, and I broke all protocol and said hey dan dan this is hr here's 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 what's going on because i wanted his troop to hear that you know i was calm things were calm yeah and we worked out what's called a restricted fire line so they wouldn't shoot past a certain area um you know and then the fight wasn't over there was still a lot of fighting to go on with g troop with i troop and then and then uh and then we had a counterattack come against us which we destroyed pretty quickly we fired artillery um against the enemy and we expended all of our mortars uh, against uh the enemy forward of us the and then brought a psychological operations team up to 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 uh, solicit surrenders, and right. and we took the surrenders that night of, of hundreds of uh, of enemy soldiers. So HR, treated, treated wounded, evacuated wounded. So HR, I mean, I, this is. I mean, first of all, thanks for taking us through it and and giving us a, a, the <laughs> flavor. I wish you know. Unfortunately, we're we're basically out of time, and I know you, you've got to run. And and we, I wish we could keep talking about this, but yeah. um, maybe just in in a second, if you can tell us. So the, the obviously the bulk is over at, at this point. The bulk of the fighting. What just what was the significance and the impact of of the Battle of seventy three Easting in terms of the war? And and then we'll we'll wrap it up on our end. And you know, thank you for reliving right. this and for what you did on that day. Well, you know, I think what it did for me is it, is it, it just validated that, that, uh, you know, that the tough realistic training, uh, and, 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 and equipment that is designed to overmatch your enemy is, is a potent combination. I, I would say the number one, the number one reason for us, our, our success in this fight and the fact that we had no casualties in our group, thank God, uh, was the confidence. It's the confidence we had in, in our, in our weapon systems. It's a confidence we had in, 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 in our, our leaders, our great, great sergeants, great lieutenants, uh, and the confidence we had in, in one another. Right. And, and I, w- I would also say that what you could learn from this, uh, is really an object lesson from the perspective of our enemies, right? Our enemies concluded, Hey, there are two ways to fight the United States army, you know, asymmetrically and stupidly. And I, I think the, I think the Iraqis picked stupidly uh, on this occasion and played to our strengths. And I think 
our, our enemies learned vicariously from that. And we've seen that in the protracted conflicts in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq as, as, as examples. I do think some people took the wrong lessons from this. Uh, maybe they, they believed that our technological military prowess was the, was the sole de- decisive factor, and therefore a revolution in military affairs would make the next war fundamentally different from all those that had gone before it. Uh, and, and so the lopsided victory, I would say, was the qualitative edge that we had more than maybe anything. But then also we have to remember that the Iraqis fought very, with great, I mean, they felt, fought with great professionalism, great courage. I mean, the, the, this, uh, this Republican Guard unit, uh, Major Muhammad spoke perfect English. Mm-hmm. You know, he got into the back of one of our Bradleys, the Squadron Tac, Tactical Command Post Bradley, and on it, you know, and in the turret shield door, that's the sergeant, uh, Staff Sergeant Willie Burns, had taped a picture of Rommel because we had studied wow. Rommel's North Africa campaigns. Wow. And, and, uh, and, and Major Muhammad says, you know, hey, why do you have a picture? In perfect English, why do you have a picture of your World War II adversary in your Bradley? <laughs> and then a private in that track said, listen, expletive deleted. <laughs> uh, why don't you shut the, again, expletive deleted hell up? Right. Um, if you'd read a little bit more about Rommel, you wouldn't be sitting in the back of my track. It's <laughs> a great, it's a great way to end. It's a great story. Uh, HR, I wish, uh, honestly, I wish we could go longer. Um, but I know we're, we're out of time. Uh, we just wanted to take this opportunity on the Pacific century to celebrate and commemorate what you did as a captain that day, um, 30 years ago, uh, and, and what it meant, uh, to the army, but what it meant in terms of the history of, of armored warfare. So, Thank you for taking the time to uh, to reminisce with us, and thank you for your service, and, and we're just thrilled you could join us again on the Pacific Century. Hey, thanks, Misha. Yeah. Thanks, John. You know, don't, don't ever ask us, you know, an old soldier for a war story. You're going to get more than you bargained for, man. <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm so proud of our troopers. Can't believe it's 30 years, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about an extraordinary unit and, uh, and, 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 uh, and just great soldiers and, and leaders and, and Eagle Troop of the 2nd Cavalry. Well, Thank we'll, you. We'll, uh, we'll be able to talk with you more about this, I know. And thanks again. So for now, from the Pacific Century, bye-bye. Bye, everybody. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. 